text this morning is uh, Job chapter 29, as continue my series through the book of Job. So if you'll please turn your Bibles to Job 29, and hear God's word as I read this chapter. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, The young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. The good old days. It's a sentiment, very common sentiment, that we have this longing for the past. We remember time spent with family, some of whom are no longer with us. Maybe you recall a former job or a vacation or a time when the culture was more conservative and laws less restrictive. Often people will point to the past as a time when life was simpler and more enjoyable. It's a common thought to recognize how in the past we didn't realize how good we had it. In reminiscing about the past, we remember when things were different. And it's typical in in recollecting the past to remember the blessings, but also there are woes as well that we can recall. In fact, there are those who don't even want to think about the past. They have moved forward from what were hard times. To dwell on a hard past is not always helpful except perhaps to remind ourselves of lessons learned or to lead us to be thankful for what God has delivered us from. It's also possible and probably more of a reality than we realize that we tend to forget the hardships of the past as we exaggerate the good times. For example, one of my grandmothers often spoke of 
life with my grandfather while he was alive, and you would have thought that the man was perfect. Um, you would have thought based on what she talked about, as, uh, as she talked about her life with him, you would have thought that her life was paradise. Well, it wasn't. There were good times, yes, and they had a decently good marriage, but in her case, I think that her present grief over losing him created in her a longing for something lost to the past. Yes, it was good, it was, it was worth missing, but she was not missing the heaven on earth that she actually had or wanted. I was recently talking to someone about this very matter of the good old days, and it was wisely said that we're now living in the good old days. Our days now, with their mixture of challenges and joys, will be the good old days of the future. And so enjoy them now. And yes, even the present days that seem overwhelmingly challenging will be swept up in a panorama of basically good memories, depending upon where our focus lands. You and I certainly have the capacity to recall all of the stress and the mistreatment and botched decisions and strained relationships of the past and bitterness can be stirred up to the degree that we think about all of our losses. But I've also noticed that people that only see tragedy in the past don't view the present in any kind of positive light. Their bitterness over the past clouds their enjoyment of the present. What happened in the past has left them with a victim mentality that leads them to see in an exaggerated way the same things happening in the present. And we can fall into that mindset where we have no good old days. And we also have the capacity to reflect on the many tokens of God's goodness and to find ourselves thanking and praising God for his grace that was at work even in the hard things of the past and still as it is at work in the present. A balanced approach to life is to recognize that there is always going to be a mixture of the hard and the easy, or at least an alternating between the two, recognizing that both hard and easy times don't go on forever. And it's wise to trust and praise God in both. And the truth is that as good as the past may have been, it's not as good as the future that we have in Christ. It's okay to long for what Christ has for us in the future. Um, if we are happy with life here, completely happy, we're not going to long to be with Christ. And scripture is clear that longings for that better life with Christ, it, these longings are normal, they're expected, they're good. Just as long as we don't allow such longings to be driven by bitterness over our past or present that leaves us paralyzed and useless in doing what Christ would have us to do right now at this moment in our lives. Well, for Job, his present life, as he writes Job 29, was dominated by hardships. While he had a past that basically was filled with pleasantries. We can be certain his past life was not perfect, but in contrast to his present circumstances, we are not surprised that he would reminisce about the good old days. In Job's case, his past was indeed a pleasant time compared to the present. We are now in our study of Job considering Job's final speech, and it takes up chapters 29 through 31, so three chapters. And ch uh, chapter 29 begins, as 
read a moment ago, and Job again took up his discourse. And chapter 31 concludes with these words, the words of Job are ended. And, uh, and chapter 29 has Job thinking about the good old days, which is the text for this morning's sermon. Chapter 30 finds Job lamenting his present condition. And Job, uh, chapter 31 is Job making a defense to God with the hope that God will vindicate him and explain to him what all is happening in his life. But for this morning, I've taken as the theme of chapter 29, the good old days. And under this theme, I see two main topics that Job is remembering. First of all, a time of prosperous fellowship, a time of fellowship with God. That's what he, that he feels marked his life at an earlier time. And then second, a time of dignity when he was an instrument of blessing in his society, an important leader and recognized as such. And for our third point, I want to bring everything together in a way that highlights Job as a type of Christ, pointing to a future reality of hope and blessing. So this, this first point, our sub-point of, uh, of fellowship is based on verses, tw- uh, of, uh, verses 2 through 6. And uh, there are two aspects of how Job describes the good old days that are unexpected, that are not the norm. And the first concerns his emphasis in these opening verses on fellowship with God. Job's recollection of the good old days is different than most. For example, when when reading verse 2 for the first time, we anticipate the conclusion being something else than what Job has for us. Job is not merely describing the past, but he is expressing the longing of his heart for things to be like they were back then. And he begins, oh, that I, were as, uh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when, and if we stopped right there and, and filled in the blanks with what we expect him to say, we might expect him to say, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when I had my family, when I had my wealth, when I had my health. If only I could get those things back. That's what we expect. But that's not what Job longs for. That's not what he says. His desire is for a return to days when he knew God was with him in love and friendship. So he refers to days when God watched over him. Um, he speaks of that in, a, in a, let's see, which verse is that here exactly? Um, he says, uh, when the Almighty was yet with me, Sorry, I'm not seeing that here exactly. Again, Job took up his discord and said, Oh, that I were as in the days of old. Okay, that's here in verse 2. As in the days when God watched over me. So the Hebrew word for watch implies their kind care. Kind care. And the idea would be something like how we care for one another, we, and, and we describe that as we watch out for one another in order to help meet needs and overcome problems. Or another analogy would be a parent watching over a child to make sure right, what, that that child is healthy and safe. And of course, God's watchful care over us is substantially greater than any watching that we can do. His watching is marked by omniscience he knows all things it's it's marked by omnipotence he's all-powerful 
He watches over all of his creation. He knows everything that is happening at every moment in time to every one of his creatures. He's determined all that's going to take place. And in line with his promises to bless his people, he's determined all of these things to take place. And his watchful care then is this superintending of all that happens in our lives so that nothing happens that is truly harmful to us. This is really a watching that's grounded in the gospel that ensures that it is a loving watching. And this is the kind of watching that Job would claim he's experienced in the past and expects in the present, but he has struggled to understand how what is happening fits with this kind of a loving, watchful care, which is why he speaks of this watching by God as something of the past. He says, as in the days when God watched over me, past tense. And actually, there have been several times so far where Job has referred to God watching over him as actually something negative. If you can uh, recall maybe some of these passages in Job 10.14, Job said to God, If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. Job 13.27, You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Job 14.16, Job is longing for death and he explains why. He says, For then you would number my steps, you would not keep watch over my sin. And what unites all of these verses in which Job refers to God watching over him is that Job feels like God is watching over him to catch him as often as possible in sin in order to punish him for every little thing. God's watch over him means God looking for the slightest sin in order to just bring down the hammer of justice on him. God knows that our covenant God doesn't operate that way with us but that is how things seem to Job in his experience. He longs in contrast for the days when he could rest in God's watchful care that was forgiving and that was gentle and that was patient and was forbearing. What Job remembers are days when God, by means of revelation, helped him to understand how to live in a depraved world. Verse 3, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness. God's lamp and light refer to God revealing truth to Job that helped him to understand how to walk in a dark world, a world of evil, a world that's marked by many troubles due to the curse of sin. And that Job remembers walking through darkness means that he's realistic, that his past was not all rosy. But what he does remember is God's truth giving clarity, giving joy in the midst of life's challenges. I would suggest that he remembers God's word directing him away from the paths of sin, the paths that are full of trouble and destruction, and he took those warnings seriously. He remembers the good news of God's loving forgiveness, as well as judgment that comes against those who don't repent of sin. Back then, God's word all made sense. It all seemed to fit with life, but now it doesn't. He wishes for the days when God's word was a guide and comfort that lined up with his life experience. And Job remembers being in his prime, verse 4, as I was in my prime. And uh, literally in the Hebrew, this is interesting and and brings um, very vivid things to our minds. It literally says the days of my harvest or my autumn days. 
That's what he's referring to. The figure comes from the autumn time of year when fruit becomes ripe and the harvest is gathered. And so in relation to Job's life, it refers to that autumn time in life, probably in middle or later years, when a person has reached the days of ripe maturity, a time in life when they can reap the fruit of sowing that has gone on for years. And I want to describe that, that sowing. I think there's here the, the fruit of accumulated wealth from years of hard work. That enables an older adult to work less, which frees up time and energy to pursue other things, like investing in the lives of others. There's fruit that comes from the wisdom of studying and applying the scriptures to everyday life over many years. And just when Job had reached reached this, this autumn of his life and was able to be a powerful influence for good on the people around him, in his family, in his society, at that time he was struck down. And he remembers the days as a father, maybe a grandfather, at least with the prospect of becoming one. Days when his children were there all around him. He remembers days of wealth. He remembers even a luxurious life, which is what he means when he says his steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out streams of oil. Back then, butter was a luxury. That was a, it was a delicacy that you were able to have when your herds were large and you had excess milk. And the oil refers to olive oil and to the, to the, and that the rock poured out streams points to this amazing provision of God in that part of the world and how olive trees will grow in these extremely rocky areas where essentially nothing else will grow. There they thrive. There they produce oil, which is one of God's great blessings, providing fuel and food and, and medicine. And so apparently Job had large herds. He had groves of olive trees. And what stands out is, from what he says here, it's not that he misses these things, though he certainly did, but what bothers Job is how he feels like he has lost his relationship with God of friendship and fellowship. Verse 4 speaks of the friendship of God, as something of the past, of which these blessings were proof. For Job, it was in the past when the Almighty was with him, verse 5. And what especially bothers Job is not a loss of these earthly blessings, as pleasant as they are and as thankful as he should be for them, and we should be for such things when we have them. But what bothers Job is his sense of being forsaken by God. His his earthly losses are for him evidence that something is not right with God, and what is especially distressing is that he doesn't know how to restore things. Job figured that as long as he feared God, which includes repenting of sin, God would have no reason to treat him so harshly. As I said earlier, Job's attitude and his perspective here is not the norm. It's not what we expect. In our tendency to be self-centered and earth-centered, we often lose sight of what really matters in life. Eternal life is knowing God. And the worst possible thing to be experienced, whether we realize it or not, is... To not be in fellowship with God. Job realized these things. Job had more wisdom than many in this world. I mentioned earlier that there are two aspects of Job's recollection of the good old days that don't fit the norm. And the first has been Job's main longing, not being over the reversal of his early losses and not longing for a restoration of those things, but a longing for a restored relationship with God, at least as he perceives it. 
of all that he is going through, the main thing is that he feels like God is against him. His concern is rare. It's not understood by many in this world. Job's priority is his spiritual well-being over his earthly comfort because of a knowledge that fellowship with God is what life is all about. Because of a knowledge that nothing of this world has significance. It doesn't have any meaning without a relationship with God. Not many know God that well. The second part of Job's recollection is also one that's not shared by many um, as he, he, re, he reflects on the days of the past, which I'm summarizing as days of dignity. These were days when Job was making a difference in his society as an important leader. What especially dominates Job's longings as he thinks of the past is not what others would share. For one thing, there are not many who have the kind of position of influence as Job had. And furthermore, not many share the heart of Job, who found enjoyment and fulfillment in serving God by serving others. Ash, in his commentary, does a good job of summarizing Job's unique perspective on life. He says, what comes next may also be a surprise, for when Job turns to expand on the nature of the blessing he experienced through fellowship with God, it turns out that this blessing is not at all the blessing that a hedonist would describe. It is not in our terms, his exotic holidays, his swimming pool, his designer clothes, or his fast car that fills his thoughts. The blessing he now describes is a long way from the blessings promised in the prosperity gospel, or even the self-centered subjective blessings promised in the therapeutic gospel. It is a blessing that consists in being a blessing to others. Those who walk in fellowship with the God of grace will themselves become embodiments of that grace to a needy world. It's very striking that five verses are devoted to describing Job's life at home as opposed to 20 verses about his social service, end quote. And along these lines, verses 7 through 11, as well as verses 21 through 25, describe the great respect with which Job was held in society. Verses 12 through 17, there in the middle, explaining why he was given such respect. And Job longs for return to those days, those days when he was held in respect by the community. And there's nothing to suggest that this is the self-centered longing of a man who just relishes political honor and power for their own sake. No, what Job longs for are days of service, days when he was pushing back evil and ministering justice. Belcher, in his commentary, offers a good summary of Job's past as a civil servant. He says Job highlights his prominent place in the community by mentioning his role at the gate of the city. Notice there verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, we don't in our day and age understand what that means. But as Belcher explains, legal matters were determined at the city gate. And Job had an important place among those who heard such cases. Job's reputation was so great that others deferred to him out of respect. Young men withdrew from Job's presence. Old men rose and stood. Rulers and other important people refrained from talking in his presence. Job's words of wisdom were respected by all. Verse 11. And the reason Job was respected in the community is because he acted in righteousness toward the poor and protected them from the unrighteous. He helped the helpless by delivering the poor, the fatherless, and the widow. He became eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, a father to the needy, 
and a friend to the stranger in trouble. The poor are depicted as prey in the mouth of the unrighteous whom Job freed by breaking their teeth. Job's righteousness and justice were visible in his actions, even as a person's robe is visible to all. Job's description of his life stands in stark contrast to the view of his friends, especially Eliphaz's claim that Job had ignored the rights of the oppressed back in Job 22. The characterization of Job as righteous and just matches the picture of Job in chapters 1 and 2 and will become the basis of his oath of innocence in chapter 31. In verses 21 through 25 in our text here, continue on pretty much this same theme, but with a slight difference. Verses 7 through 11 emphasize the respect that others had for Job, while verses 21 through 25 emphasize the impact that Job had on shaping and building the community. And again, to quote from this commentator, um, Richard Belcher, he says, uh, Job's wisdom was so highly regarded that others waited for him to speak And after he spoke, there was nothing more to be said. The response of the friends is very different in that they take every opportunity to undermine Job and question his words. But his words were like the coming of the winter rains to water the earth. And the community drank wisdom from his words as the ground absorbs the spring rains that bring the crop to a full harvest. Job was also an inspirational leader who did not look down on others with arrogance, but encouraged them when they lacked confidence to speak. His role was so prominent that he lived like a king among the people. Job had some authority over the people, reflected in those words, I chose their way. But I would point out it was a, entirely a voluntary submission to, to someone whose guidance they valued. In fact, he acted as a shepherd toward them by comforting those who mourned, end quote. As you and I think about what these verses tell us about Job's heart, we recognize a great man of God. We can recognize that Job's longings were for good and worthwhile things. For many, perhaps for even some of us, a remembrance of the past is a recipe for depression and is simply the context for moaning over the losses that time has brought. Maybe that the things that are missed are understood from a spiritual perspective, but I'm afraid that for many that's not the case. Their longings are for things that are never going to take place again. For some, and this is surprising to me, but nevertheless I hear it from time to time, there are those who wish they could go back to the days of high school and college. Or to go back to the days when uh, they were raising their young children. Or days of better health. Or go back to a certain vacation or family gathering And there's nothing wrong with remembering such things as a prompt to thank God for past blessings. But we need to be realistic about whether our longings are for things that can really happen. Or are we simply living in the past in a way that ignores what should be our true hope for the future? Let me suggest that in Job's case, his longings concern things that should be the longing of every child of God. And that in these longings, Job was ultimately reflecting Jesus Christ, the longings of Christ himself, and the salvation that he alone can bring. The heart of Job's longings was a desire for perfect fellowship with God. And maybe you remember days in the past when you felt especially close to God 
And it may be worth contemplating why it is that at present you're not having that same experience. I would suggest as a likely explanation that in the past you were in the word of God and you were praying, that you were consistently involved in the ministries of the church and and in the fellowship of the church and you were involved in those things in a greater way and you've drifted away from those things. Or perhaps there's unconfessed sin. It might also be that, like Job, you are in a season of suffering and you're struggling to reconcile what is happening with God's love for you in Christ. Perhaps what you need is an adjustment to your thinking from God's word about how he uses suffering in our lives to bless us, to bless us with many graces that are related to spiritual growth, such as humility and faith, wisdom, love and hope. You see, suffering helps you understand and appreciate Christ's voluntary suffering on the cross as he bore your sins. Do you ever think of that as you suffer? Does, it, your, does your suffering ever lead you to think of Christ and his suffering that he voluntarily endured for our benefit? And that's always a good thing because a growing love for Christ is in what will motivate you to, to please God in all that you do. And that's your calling. And it's also a life that's filled with joy. Do you want a hard life that never seems to go right? Well, then just ignore God and live for self. On the other hand, there is truth to the song that to be happy in Jesus, you must trust and obey. Now, of course, there's nothing without the trust of faith. Faith is first. Faith is foremost. To your faith, you don't add works. In order to be reconciled to God, you don't need to do that. You can't do that. But once you know God through faith in Christ, you will love him and you will want to please him. And that's because that's the fruit of faith. And God does an amazing thing. He makes it so that obeying him out of love is enjoyable. That's what Job remembers. He remembers the joy of serving God by serving others. And the point is that Your suffering then helps you to love Christ, which helps you to obey Christ, which helps you to live a life that is fulfilling because your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And don't forget that this glorifying him and enjoying him work together. When you determine to please God with your life, God will honor that struggle and the sacrifice involved in obeying him. You're not going to enjoy every moment of obedience. Christ did not enjoy every moment of what it required him to do to earn our salvation, but it's worth it from God's perspective, from a spiritual perspective. And you will learn that suffering is so worth it just from the perspective of how it relates to your own happiness in the Lord. But in some, suffering by God's grace then is a path to happiness. Suffering also makes you long to be with God. And in that way, renews your hope because for you, believer, the day is coming when you will be with God. Think of it. And you will have no more suffering. Even suffering caused by persecution has a purpose. When it is joined with a refusal to deny God and a a commitment to serve Christ no matter what, that, that suffering then serves as a context for being a powerful witness that God can use in the process of bringing sinners to himself in faith. So yes, suffering has a positive purpose, and yet we long for the day when all of this suffering will end. The point is that suffering needs to be understood properly 
lest it become the occasion for you to question your fellowship with God in Christ. And as Job rightly understands, there is nothing worse than losing a sense of fellowship with God. We were created to long for fellowship with God and to find satisfaction in fellowship with God. And Job was also godly in his longing for a world free from the curse of sin. While, yes, we will face on some level the curse of sin as long as we live in this sin-cursed world, there's also the reality and privilege that we can be instruments of righteousness. We can, by God's grace, as good servant leaders, stand up for what is right and work to push back the effects of the curse. We can support those who are ravaged by the effects of sin. We can comfort them with the gospel. We can help them with their physical needs. We can work to suppress those who are oppressing the helpless out of their self-centered greed. A longing for a world marked by righteousness is a godly longing. And let me suggest that what Job was longing for is legitimate in that it can and it will happen. For one thing, Job doesn't realize it yet, but God is going to grant Job a reliving of the good old days. His wealth and his health will be restored, and he will have another family. Does that take away the pain of the past entirely? No. But it does show that God can and will restore to us the things of the past, as long as they are good things and glorify him, things that draw us closer to him. And let us also have clear in our minds that even if we were to have some of our longings from the past, regarding the past, restored to us in this life, let's evaluate those longings. Let's think about their fulfillment. For one thing, are we longing for things that are eternal or things that will one day end? In verses 18 through 20, Job sets forth a thinking that he had in the past as all was going well. He envisioned himself living this long and prosperous life where he dies with strength, doing the things that he loves right up to the very end. Right, That opposed to what happens to some of us, some of, even believers, where there's this slow ebbing away into death from, for example, a debilitating disease. Job, um, I'm referring now to verses 18 through 20, he says, Then I thought... Back then, in those days, he thought, I'm going to die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days of sand. My roots spread out to the waters, and uh, with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. He longs for a return to a life that's marked by that, that, that kind of that expectation that all of these things are going to continue to go well. But you know, what difference does it make, even that Job is going to find his health and his wealth and his family restored, he's going to, in the end, die, right? His death is still coming. And so you can long for a pleasant and long earthly life, but if and when it ends, it will end at some point. You see, the longing needs to be for something more. You can long for something more. You can long for something lasting. And that is why... Our longing should be for the kingdom of God. And I proclaim to you that the right longings which Job did have can and will be fulfilled through Christ. In Christ, we will experience perfect fellowship with God in heaven that never ends. Gone will be any and all sin that constantly hinders our relationship with him. Gone will be all of the curse of sin. So there'll be no more tears due to death where we mourn over the loss of loved ones. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. 
For in Christ, all of the former things, Scripture says, will have passed away. In Christ, we will have an inheritance of life with God in a new heaven and new earth. The kingdom of Christ will have no oppression of the weak. So gone will be all injustice, all of the wicked people that we now see in power in this world having their way. All of that will be ended. Christ will be our king and all of his and our enemies will have no place. There is a world and there is a life that is coming that is great and that will never change. It is eternal and that is what we long for. A future of hope that is coming because Christ has earned it for us. And God cannot be stopped. Jesus is God, and nothing can stop his plan to bless us. In this chapter, as we close this morning, I want you to see very clearly how Job is a type of Christ, how he points to Christ, how the things that he longs for here reflect Christ. At the heart of Job's suffering, right, was a sense of loss, a loss of fellowship with God. Think of Christ now on the cross, the very worst thing that he experienced of all was that experience of being forsaken by God as he bore our sins. He lost a sense of of God's fellowship far worse than Job ever experienced. But Job was a type of Christ in recognizing that that is the worst possible thing that can happen. And Job's role and joy was to push back the curse of sin, bring righteousness to a fallen world, and that he pointed to Jesus, who is the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who while he was on earth demonstrated his power over the curse of sin and his miracles as he released people from demon oppression, as he healed people. And our hope is that he will bring a kingdom of perfect righteousness, a kingdom completely free of the curse of sin. That is our hope. That is a reality that is coming. What is your reminiscing about the past doing for you? I assume that all of you at various times reminisce about the good old days. What is your reminiscing like? What is it doing for you? Is it making you bitter over the things that you no longer have? Perhaps a good thing is coming from that. Perhaps you're thankful as you look back and you can reflect on the good things that God did. Or perhaps reminiscing makes you hopeful that things can be restored And and you can experience, once again, things that were a part of your past. But may these longings be for those things that Christ is bringing for his people. Things that relate to the kingdom of God. Things that will last. Because then these things that you long for will be things that will be yours for certain. And they will be things that are eternal. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for... The reminder here in this text of the things that really matter in life. That yes, we've experienced many good things, things that we long for, and we're thankful, Father, that in Christ we can find satisfaction, and in Christ we can have the hope of a life in which we will experience good things that go on for all eternity, namely fellowship with you, but also freedom from the curse of sin, freedom from all of the struggles of this life. We thank you, Christ, for for suffering in our place, suffering what it is to be forsaken by God. That's what our sins deserve. And we thank you, Jesus, for having suffered that for us in our place so that we are never forsaken by God, even in our suffering. 
Lord, give us the right perspective on the suffering in our life. Uh, we, we long for days where there's no suffering, and yet suffering is good for us. Suffering is part of your plan for us. And uh, Father, may we accept that, even as we long for days when the suffering will end. And uh, we thank you, Father, that that day is coming when Christ will be revealed as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and your people will be ushered into that, that glorious life that belongs to the new heaven and new earth, a kingdom where there is no wickedness, where there's no oppression, where there's no pain. Father, we thank you for what Christ has accomplished, that we can have this future of hope, and that we don't have to just look back to the, the passing pleasures of the past, but we can look forward to a future that is eternal. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.